0: All right. Uh, for those listening at home, um, once again, Clayton Thompson. And I actually decided to do a second podcast because I get obsessed with things um, and I have ADHD and that's tight. So this is my good friend, Emilio. Emilio and I have actually never met. We've been longtime Internet buddies for, I don't know, two years, three years.
1: Probably probably two, close to three. Yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah. So it's cool to meet somebody not in the flesh, but, you know, Emilio's been Where where were you? Were you at CSU Pueblo? when we first started it? talking
1: yeah csu pueblo finishing my last year yeah
0: that's tight and hey, you were you're obviously a pitcher um how hard did you throw i forget
1: opt 89 let's go 87
0: but, but then you win and work for and treading how hard you threw 90 i i saw it out there
1: i did throw 90 i think i got up to like 90.9 that was it 90.9 hard Hardest nine. i ever throw ninety point nine, 99 just barely below sucking
0: all right, okay, so if you if you're throwing as a coach, how do you feel about coaches having to throw hard and be, to be a good coach? Where's your take on that?
1: I guess that's hard. Is like, fuck, dude. I don't know. Experience is so beneficial in so many things. so It's hard to discredit it. But like, I think about a guy like so. If you think about like a guy like Travis Mash, and he has like hip surgeries going through some of, like, the health issues and stuff, if he's still not performing, even though he may have in the past, still not performing now, obviously he is now after surgeries and stuff. But, like, when he was kind of, like, taking a break from all the training and stuff, are you still going to, like, listen to him? Probably, you know? And I think that's, like, the hard part for me is, like, I don't know if it matters. I think it gave me a lot of insight, but I don't know if it matters, if that makes sense. Like, I don't know if I – I don't really know if I understood the throw better throwing 1.2 miles an hour harder than my top in a game, right? Or if it was everything going through that, where like I probably learned more throwing 85 than I did hitting my 90. If that, I don't know, you know, like it's more like the experience based stuff, like conversations with people, having a better understanding of internal dialogue, separating what I used to view as cues and constraints versus what really, you know, were cues and constraints that I just never, never thought about. Yeah. Um, Which I guess once again, like comes from throwing, but also I think I had a really big advantage, at least going into tread because I was so new from playing versus like most people that were there. Like some people were off like pro ball season, some were, you know, still trying to pursue it and things like that. But I think I just, Our coach forced us to play. We didn't really do a lot of mechanical stuff, good and bad, just not really going to talk about that theory or whatever. But I at least had the remembrance of like what training was supposed to be about. And I think that was probably the most impactful thing of like what I view as a coach is like you can get into so many environments and just kind of forget what the fuck the goal is about.
0: Yeah. I mean, so I obviously had this argument on Twitter with Chase Van Dyke and he was saying that he to throw hard. he needed to throw hard to get his guys to buy in to his program because he doesn't have the coaching background experience and i think if that's your opinion like i like dude like connect with your players like talk with them like help them understand why they're doing things like that's a much better approach to like having to train for, you know, three to four hours. I mean, okay. Like you should like me, if you want to throw, like you you can still throw, but like, if that's your excuse, like I need these guys to buy in because they'll see me throwing hard and then want to do my program, like either write a better program, tell them why they're doing their program because people who don't do stuff generally don't know why they're doing things. It's like when my when I was four and my mom used to tell me to take out trash or do a dumb chore. I always used to say no. And then throw a temper tantrum. And then my mom, like a really good mom, would just go, Clayton, if you don't do this, I can't do this for dinner. And I'd just be like, Okay, that makes sense. I want to eat food. This is to help me eat food. Like, this is good. This is this is I can obviously see the connection here. And then I go and do it. So I don't think that there's like a prerequisite, like, oh, you need to throw this hard. Like, yes, it's definitely good to have like prior throwing experience. Like if you've never thrown a baseball before, it'll be really hard to coach. Like, there's no way like I don't throw 90, I won't be a good coach. Like, that's
1: – no. No, I mean, dude, like, um, I guess – I I think of two names right now that kind of come to mind. Uh, Nick Zappala, Uh Dude, dog. Dog, I great, love that guy. But, like, when Nick was kind of helping me, he was really the first big influence I had in training um, when he was at Pueblo. And, like, he just would talk to me about stuff. I would learn a lot from him. It's like, I never – listen to him because he threw hard like he threw hard and he was gross but i didn't listen to him because of that it was almost like when you when you know someone has an innate passion and care for something you are more willing i feel like to be like okay maybe he doesn't have everything figured out but like i know he's gonna arrive to some conclusion that i won't because he's gonna be in the fucking like trenches trying to figure something out and like that peace of mind is probably a little bit better for me listening to people rather than like any accolade based reasoning for it um yeah you know like he's definitely like the biggest one of the biggest influence i can see from that lens is like yeah he was nasty but i never i never viewed him being good as to why i would listen to him it's like once again explain some methodology stuff having the passion to be like very very bought into why he was doing things not that his way was the best way but like like in his mind why it's not his way is the best way but where i kind of took something from my own coaching is like and kind of going full circle on being on social media now dude you can know very little but as long as it fits within your system of coaching and you coach it really fucking well right people buy into your system because it's the way you operate it's that blending i guess of like the artistic viewpoint of how you can approach training versus having something like the principle based stuff behind it from any of the research science experience based stuff you've already done. Right. People buy into a system. They don't necessarily yeah. buy in, into- you know, I don't know. I guess it's hard to say. Like, it's, like-
0: like, it's like Lance Wheeler. It's like Lance Wheeler owns the pelvis. Like I'm pretty sure, sure like yeah. if, if somebody had a pelvis issue and no one else could solve it, like I'm pretty sure like you would call Lance Wheeler, no matter your thoughts on him at all. Sure. Like that's, that's probably the guy that you would, you know he owns that shit and yeah. he he gets people to sign up with him and that you know depending on you take that's for better or for worse but Lance- yeah no
1: Lance- it doesn't matter it's you're correct you know you're correct is like yeah. you just kind of go and like i think of even something like um and i don't want to throw shade or anything right now but it's like you know like jake tura big tendon guy right it's like huge anytime he posts i don't really know what he's talking about in terms of like the depth of when he goes into a lot of the stuff but like, if I have any sort of, I don't think of him, everyone loves the vertical jump protocol and I heard hypertrophy clusters protocol, right? Like the ebook stuff. Yeah. I think like, do both really fun programs. I've ran them in my viewpoint. Do I think that is the best way to elicit hypertrophy? No. Do I think it's a sick program? Yes. So I'm not saying that. Yeah. Like, and Jake, I mean,
0: um, yeah. And I'm um, Jake's programs aren't for, you know, the how to get the biggest and best guys. It's true. like, if you're a nobody and you want to spend $30, here's a quick and easy way to get bigger.
1: For sure, dude. And like I said, like ran it after COVID, it was pretty sick. Like regardless of like methodology, dude, it was just like, yes, you'll experience some sort of benefit and it's pretty fun. But if I'm going to him, right. It's like, yeah, he probably knows a trillion times more about any tendon related thing than I could ever. So it's like, just based off of that, you know, you buy into a system of something that he incorporates because underlyingly, you know, he has an idea what's going on. So then every almost exercise, I could give you the same exercises, right. But you're more comfortable because you feel as though Jake's system is revolved around tenant health repair. Absolutely. Right. And I think that's like what I guess I'm trying to get to is like, you feel comfortable buying into a system because you, you feel like the person behind it, even if it's a very small sort of scope of practice that they're working on. They can bring in so many things that you'll automatically buy into because you know, I guess intrinsically, that they're going to be funneled through this lens that you're trying to get better at or trying to improve yeah. or whatever.
0: He's writing a tendon book. You know that, right?
1: I don't, but I'm yeah. sure it's going to-, he's
0: going to He's going to write a book okay. on tendons. It's going to be sick. Watch out 2024. That's why he went on his road trip uh, ah. in the US. No, 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 to get out of writing his tendon book because he started <laughs> and he was like, I don't want to do this. And so we just started driving around. And I think that that is hysterical.
1: That's sick, dude. Yeah. Like, I'm sure like stuff like that is going to be, once again, it's going to seem like a, I don't know, man, I don't know how long it's going to be or whatever, but like something that's seems simple to us. It's like, wow, here's all this information, right? Like condensed into something digestible. It's like that dude spent a decade plus probably through all of his learned experiences, research, readings, all of that. And, you know, I think that's, that shit's really cool.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's it's really sick, and I mean, so Nick Sapola. Last I heard, he had TOS and retired. And now, as a professional poker player, is that?
1: Yeah, I mean, he does play poker. Uh, I talked to oh, him. Yeah. He no longer he no longer uh, frequents butters due to their inflated prices. Was the last <laughs> uh, update I got from him, um, which is such a zap thing to say. Um, sure, but yeah, man. Like, I don't know. People don't really know about him i know it's like a few people at tread that trained with him um especially yeah. back in the from the same areas and stuff do um some other people from arizona but man that's like one dude that definitely flew under the radar because he was so early to stuff like one of the og dudes at x2 writing people's programs man uh um, we record
0: yeah so Nick apollo i trained to, i trained to drive line with him obviously that was that was while he was still training guys through x2 and dude. then he got TOS and then he and Cole Uvila started like, and Drew Hall started grinding poker. That's sick. And then now he comments like once every like five months on my Twitter or my Instagram. And it fires me up every time.
1: Dude. Yeah. I got, I got a random text from him another day. I was like, cause I mean, he's still training stuff. He goes, yeah, dude, lost a ton of weight on the program I was running, not doing that shit again. Like just out of the blue. And I'm like, just brightens my day. Like I just like get a random text from him. like he would he would write us training programs, the most like rudimentary thing I'd ever seen in my life. For whatever reason, it just worked. But he would come with like a handwritten, like on a random side of a printer paper and just give it to you. Like he just wrote it with like a little pen on like a slanted corner and just handed it to you. And that's tight. just like, it's so sick. And I was like, Yeah, you definitely wrote this in 10 minutes, and it's definitely still gonna get me better. And I mean
0: not gonna lie probably anything would have
1: gotten you better no dude for sure it's like you know yeah. and it's just stuff like that that i was like i don't know man it's like weird to see the dynamic change in baseball social media now like it was used to be like pretty bare bones everyone trying to figure it out now And then it's more now like you know even me at some point falling into the trap to it is like trying to get those clicks reels to pop off things like that but You know, after, like, consuming so much of it, you just realize, like, a lot of it's empty. It's hard. It's hard for me to consume a lot of, like, content now.
0: Yeah. I mean, I just do what makes me happy, which is why, I like, this podcast might only have two episodes. I mean, the first one I didn't even know was happening. And then a couple of my buddies came came over here, and I was like, might as well record this. Like, we're about to sit down and talk talk shop for, like, two hours. Why would I not, like, throw on Audacity and then put it up on, you know, Spotify. and then you know
1: i don't know what is it 11 episodes you're the top one percent of like podcasts that ever start if you can do 11 episodes i think i someone's gonna check me on that but
0: yeah i mean who cares i mean like 12 people listened to my first episode but you know i gotta imagine that those 12 people are grinders so shout out if you listen to this but i mean it's like you know i want people to that consume my content to have like actual quality like i want them like you know I, I worked a really long time to like learn stuff and you know you call me like Kier Kier when i'm flat says like i mean this isn't from he got this from somewhere else but he says that information can either be cheap it can be good or it can be uh or it's or it's hard to get to like you you can't have them all so it's either accessible cheap or free or whatever like it's If you pay for it and it's good and it's fast, there it is. If you pay for it, it's good and it's fast. If you don't pay for it and it's good, it takes forever. If you like that, those are the two trade-offs.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I get you. So,
0: I mean, it's good to put out like actual information that people get stuff from.
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, I guess, dude, leading into that, I, I was thinking about the DB Hammer stuff that you were pumping out. Yeah. I guess we don't really have to go through some like the theory of like fatigue, drop-off, but it's like the one, one thing I was thinking about when going through something like a high intent phase with fatigue drop-off, right? Where do you, and there's, there's no fucking answer. And I just, I think I just hate, I hate asking these questions because they're so easily pinpointing problems and I'm not necessarily bringing solutions to the table. So I feel shitty for like asking questions like this. Without not having- ask
0: them all i mean the more questions i guess i get asked to me like i had like a hour-long conversation thinking about this yesterday about a rays drawing and he's like poking holes and everything and i somehow managed to answer half of them so let's yeah. go
1: and it's not i guess the methodology whatever i'm not so concerned about but it's more now the idea of like balancing when I mean, we're talking about percent drop-offs things like that especially how db laid it out if you can call it I oh, like you got
0: your quotes there
1: yeah right? like don't know like if you yeah. if you tell know yeah. me um yeah where do you where do you start now distinguishing between more of a potential for output in terms of like a neural side of things versus the throwing efficacy from like a mechanical efficiency side yeah. of things okay right?
0: perfect so i was also thinking about this today and so the way his programs are designed, like you're either running or you're off. And so yeah. like, this is obviously like a track. It's like bonder anything you take from bonder and apply to baseball. Like you need to have like some precursors there because bonder talks a lot about, you know, like discus shot, put, whatever throwers. But the, the fallacy with that is like those guys to quote Zach, Dacon for a minute, because I love quoting him there's no stress on the body while that occurs. Like you can throw a shot all day. Like, I mean, it's like, you don't really get as sore as baseball. Like there's a lot, there's a lot higher, I mean, rotational, rotational degrees of of baseball throw a peak at like 7,200 degrees per second, which is ridiculous. And there's nothing like that in shot. And so any program that you take, you have to remember that these like sprinting, like as you're not moving as fast as baseball. And if you view it through a specific lens. And so that's the first thing that kind of goes into it. And then, but to answer your question of movement efficacy or like when you get to movement, you have you either have days where you're on, days where you're off, okay? And so like to take the Charlie Roke Francis high-low training system, you're either high, you're either low. Low, low intensity, whatever. But Stephan Jones, I, I don't know if I'm in or out, but Stephan Jones talks about these mechanical grooving days. And so depending on where you're at in the program, if, so you, you test, obviously you test every, you know, six weeks, whatever you test, your throwing velo, you test the ball velos, and you test, like you see how far the spreads are, which balls you throw the hardest, which balls you throw the slowest. Like if there's like a 10 mile an hour gap between the blue and the red, and there's only a five between the blue, uh, the red and the yellow, like there's something going on there that you need to, you need to figure out. Right. And, uh, So depending on that, that testing, uh, you figure out, you know, what your initial baseline is. Okay. And so in this program, so like, you know, in in this DB Hammer program, you're going to throw on back-to-back days, frequency toleration, where you want to frequently test your max. Okay. But if your baseline for the day is within, is like outside of like 4% of your overall baseline, like you shut it down. And then you turn it into a mechanical grooving day. So that mechanical grooving day is the day where you work on the mechanics at the medium efficiency. And that's technically your output day, but it still allows for some form of CNS recovery.
1: And I guess that's more, you know, what I was going to allude to next is how are you determining it's like. I don't want to call it daily readiness, right? But like you said, if you're not within 4% of like what a baseline should look like or whatever deviation you deem you're going to run this drop-off or fatigue kind of threshold or floor at, how are you determining how much volume they're allowed to build into before saying, okay, you know, you're not going to probably reach the baseline we're at. It's like, how how are you determining build up towards that?
0: Uh, So whenever, like, I only would allow Throw, like, two throws to not be above their next maximum. So Like if I throw my first throw at, you know, 70 and my next one's 71, my next one's 70, 70, like you're done. Like that, that's it. Like, there's no more, like that was like, you didn't build towards your max and like, you're at like a certain, like you're building up and like, this is a hundred and you're at set, like say your max is 75, 70, 71, 70, 70. And that's like, you know, like a pretty considerable drop off. That's like 5% below. Like you're done throwing
1: yeah so you're allowing them on their own
0: yeah yeah that's i mean you know within like they start their first throws at 90 percent or whatever that counts but like you need to climb pretty much every other throw but the much more reliable way that i have considered doing this is with arm speed i think that arm speed is a much like more like sound and resounding way to measure this fatigue because you know you get towards the fact of like oh like you know, like with Velo, it's like, oh, did I sequence bad? Did I, uh, like, did I just throw one wrong, whatever, and then Velo dips for a couple throws. Like, if my arm speed's still there, I'm going to keep throwing. And so, yeah. and arm speed has, you know, it's in the hundreds of degrees or potentially, you know, you're a 1,000 plus, depending on what you're throwing. And so, like, there's, like, a much wider range that you can be in. And so, it's easier to tell, like, when the trend is heading down versus, yeah. like, it's just a bad throw.
1: Yeah, and I think this is where... I prefer something like a fatigue. I don't, I guess fatigue method is the way, but like for people who haven't read a lot of like the DB work, like probably aren't going to know without listening to your auto reg primer to begin with. But I've found having one constraint drill, that's pretty minimal in the lower half has been really easy for me to determine this fatigue, especially with arm speed, just so we're not dealing with the inconsistencies of, um sequencing right like yeah just just to be able and mostly on ramping but a lot of return to throw guys that i have now um are going to be based on one constraint that i know will have relatively consistent or at least reliable arm speed readings so that way we know what's actually happening in theory in the localized tissues of the arm before progressing anything else. So it's like through the physical demands of training, it'll be a lot of like ballistic work to hopefully get the lower half brought into the picture with like, you know, some of the landing stuff, some of the impacts, all the collisions that are going to be closer to what they'll face when they're getting into like full delivery work or any sort of like
0: yeah
1: other drill work. But at least for me, I've been able to conceptualize. And once again, there's probably some big loopholes in this that I hope someone kind of like mentions um yes
0: oh for sure like if anyone ever has any questions about this or says that i'm wrong like please comment and poke holes in it. i would love to
1: yeah yeah dude like that like that's why it's like i i'm able to at least see it in a way where we can assume most of the localized adaptations are happening at the arm if we have some sort of constraint that allows more so that like torso and arm to work over um you know like having a role in having some sort of like even baby step in anything along those lines. I felt it extremely hard to keep consistent. Um, when yeah. I was doing like, throwing back in the, you know, in the facility, I tried doing like single leg throws. Um oh, I I'm in
0: on single leg throws. They're so fire.
1: Right. Like I, I had some reasonings from a mechanical side why I was doing them, but as we started getting closer to using the pulse, like me and a few guys there, Um, I realized I could count on some arm speed stuff with those way more because I'm such an inefficient thrower, dude. I'm such a bad mover that like my arm speed fluctuations were just off the walls, you know, different, different plyo balls in any different drill. It's just kind of like a shot in the dark. Um, and I just felt like those, um, at least for me, those were the, really the only throws I did at like some sort of lower half constraint where it's only primarily upper body stuff. They seem to be, for me, like, okay, I can pretty much predict, you know, what's going to, what the arm speed is going to look like. Um, just Um you know. So that's like how I've approached fatigue drop-off stuff, more so than having a neural sort of stimulus for it. But to your point, I agree that, and I guess this kind of gets in the weeds of it, right? No one really ever trains true ceiling. No, uh, they don't. That's my biggest idea ever, and people just don't get it. And like but this is where it's hard for me right tony holler regardless of what you think about him i don't necessarily know any much about in and out
0: there's a great youtube video that you should watch about speedy cats throwing program that has like forty thousand views i'll send it to you after this
1: the throwing program
0: no the the speedy cats program sorry we're talking about throwing
1: i i don't i'm not one to say like i know what's completely going on under the hood but i am like basing it off of if you're never training top end outside of competition right um are you ever training top end if you never get to your in-game velocity and now this is where I kind of go I've, I've kind of I guess combined a lot of ideas so
0: yeah, absolutely people are like yeah. what do I believe dude I believe the best stuff from everything I ever consume
1: for sure right like yeah. so when we look at what uh Brady does with some of like the theory on localized, localized fatigue and being able to prep tissues and be able to build upon adaptations, right? It's like the idea being you are always ahead of what the demands are going to be when you throw. But in theory, right, you are training to exceed the demands as much as possible, right? Like in training, you want to prep yourself to throw say 90 miles an hour, right? But in a game, your goal isn't to throw 90, your goal is to throw say 91, right? So if that's a stimulus your body's never received before, can you ever be in front of the body as much as someone like that claims? Can you ever reach full speed?
0: Like, uh, my argument is always no. Uh, I definitely exactly, don't right? think that. I mean, I think impulses, like, I don't like impulses. So this is going to be maybe an old man screaming a cloud take. But, like, impul- impulses are just a localized depth drop that you can target more. Like, But a depth drop, like, me depth dropping six feet off a box, like a ridiculous height, like just upper body, like, my arm isn't moving at fifty two hundred degrees per second. Like that's a very specialized like stressor that I'm going to have to eventually incur. Like that I won't that I won't get anywhere else besides throwing. That's why throwing is the ultimate exercise.
1: For sure. And like I think that's where some of my argument comes in too. Once again, you know, whatever principle you want to describe impulses as, I'm not the one to argue for or against it because yeah. I just don't dive into them um, as much as other people do. But the idea being if we understand that all of our actions are determined based on what we're planning to run into in future events, right? If we know we're automatic you're hitting the end of a, you know, collision where it's like a big depth drop, whether it's an impulse, whether something we can probably assume that energy, energy dispersion, whatever we're doing, you know, from the midline out is gonna look so much different than what we're doing throwing because we're bracing for an impact. And we have that sort of idea of what's happening in future events, right? And it's like-
0: So Stuart McGill, just to to throw a name out there. uh, Stuart McGill did a bunch of interesting research. So I'm not about to talk about his spine work because that's completely different. We could if you wanted, but I don't really care. But he did a bunch of uh, interesting research on the double impulse theory. And so the double impulse theory is for those of you who don't read 80s literature on the spine um, is essentially like he was working with boxers and he was noticing, that there's two impulses that occur during, uh, during a punch. And so the first one is when they go in for the punch and the second one is a contact, like the whole body reflexively and isometrically contracts. So you don't, you know, break your hand. And I think that that's really cool, but, I don't like I think that probably the same thing happens if release. if I had to guess um, because you know that's if I want to transfer the most amount of energy into the ball I'm gonna have to have a really large total body isometric contraction where I'm you know trying to hold a stiff it's like it's like if any of you guys at home have ever thrown a chuck it for your ball for your dog like right when I want to release the chuck it like everything stops and that is a huge like isometric contraction and I think People kind of forget about that. And um, I think maybe Eugene Bleeker on the whip, he he would like that.
1: Yeah, I, once again, um, I see a lot of tidbits. I don't know what goes on in a training system at like, you know, a place like 108.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's not a comment here nor there. I'm just saying, so, I yeah. think.
1: No, yeah, for sure. But like going back to that, the whole like, I I honestly think it's nonsense where it's like, we've cued pimp the throw and things have cleaned up. But diving into it a little bit more there might be some potential there where it's like people are so focused on later results of like preparing for certain landings in a certain way that things have cleared up earlier to set that sort of action up Um, and that's that's why I believe like impulse stuff can be good can be bad but even like you had Jared on um, at least you had a talk with him even he said you kind of have to set them up in a certain way for them to have the efficacy that you're chasing yes um, and i don't know that way i actually um i don't And like i guess side note i don't love whatever training him and brady promote yeah but i am interested in understanding why they think that way so i just purchased some of jared's like one-offs um that collection sure. stuff and i miss
0: he, jared I, I just love him yeah. so much
1: dude like I would be lying to say I'm not intrigued based on a lot of the research he did. So when I trained with Fowler for like over a year, um, he credited Jared to doing a lot of the research stuff on some of the stuff he was giving me. Um, and um, and then another one of my friends trained with him. So it's like, you know, if there's two people that I trust, that I are, trained with Jared as well, right? Okay, yeah. So that are in a yeah. circle. Um, it's at least it's at least for me worth listening to, and yeah. so. Like I said, I don't know what the full methodology or what's going on behind it. So I'm not going to comment on my opinion on it. But like I said, from tidbits that I see, I'm not a fan just just on the surface level. But that's why I paid him some stuff to read a little bit more, to get a more experience-based thing of what he gives out. So that way I can be less judgmental on, like I said, on like a surface level things of just looking at a social media thing.
0: Yeah, and I mean it's not just Jared and Brady. It's also Brett Adams. And I think Brett Adams is pretty smart as
1: yeah. well.
0: Like just yeah. to give just to give credit where credit is due, I think those trio guys are very smart. I think kind of the way that I would try to describe them is maybe with the exception of Brett, like Jared and Brady, like I wouldn't necessarily go to those guys for increasing performance like if if my view like performance is very unhealthy for the body and those guys are trying to get the body as healthy as possible to perform the best it possibly can and like i think that you know if you're injured or anything like that like i like one like i literally went to houston to see jared like a couple times and like sat down with him and like he was like why aren't you why aren't you asking me any questions i'm like dude like there's no way I'll ever be able to like run your programs, like do what you do. Like if, if someone has this big of a problem that comes to me, I'm just gonna refer them to you. Like I yeah. like you're I'm out of my depth. Like that's that's okay. I don't need to know this. Like I'd rather just enjoy a burger and like ask like some very general questions about what you believe. I'm not gonna get into the semantics because I'll never like I'm not on that. And that's okay. I think that like we are more geared towards performance and that's very very okay because that's a completely different lens
1: yeah yeah like you know that's that's what makes training social media so hard is it's the paradox of people wanting to be elite performers while saying you don't have to hurt while doing it it's like yeah they're not mutually you know or i guess i guess the relationship doesn't always have to be there between pain performance not pain whatever you want to call performance in terms of like success. But like, I don't know, man, you have to be willing to say like, if performance comes first, performance comes first. And that's not at the detriment of health, right? It's like, not me saying I love waffles. So therefore I hate pancakes. It's really just saying, like, yeah, I'm trying to perform as best. Yes. I can. And yes. That, you know what I mean? Like it's, yes. it's idea of like, what do you really want? And I'm not saying once again, you can't have both. But what I am saying is you better prioritize performance and be able to roadmap as responsibly as you can to get to the level of performance with the level of risk you're inherently willing to take.
0: And I think that's kind of where the mobility kind of idea, like how much mobility shit should be in your training. It's like, it's like maybe, maybe mobility isn't a big deal for baseball throwers. I think it's a lot different for throwing the jab. And that's why like it's carried over to baseball, like doing crazy shit. And I mean, like, like you, yeah. there is a pre like prerequisite amount of mobility you should have. And like, you might train it, you know, like a couple minutes a day, but like most of your shit should be like, I am who I am. Like, let's, let's learn how to throw hard with that. And it's not that I hate mobility. It's just like, you know, like we're trying to maximize performance and maybe some of these, you know, compensation patterns that you have and you feel like you're limited by, they're probably helping you.
1: And I agree, dude. It's like, just because I'm saying, you only need a certain requisite range to accomplish a task doesn't mean I, I hate mobility. I think that's what people say. It's like, oh, you don't believe in extraneous amounts of time spent on mobility. Yeah, dude, just like I wouldn't give someone a two-hour long workout. Like, two questions yeah. that I always ask athletes is like, what is your perceived intent on that day? And how long did it take you? Like you will, if you ask almost anyone that you know I've been in contact with that, those two will always be on a sheet because I legitimately still have the side of it's like i don't want you spending two hours in the weight room man like i don't want you spending two hours ability right i want you to be able to dose appropriately and i'm not here to tell you what that is like once again it kind of falls within whatever system you kind of train people under but you need to be able to dose appropriately to where you still have the ability to go do your skill do your task whatever you want to whatever you want to call it right and i think that's like where social media gets taken out of context too much dude is like just because you like something doesn't mean you hate something else. It's not, not how it works. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, And just like that, mobility is an easy thing to sell to people because.
0: Oh, it's so easy. Here's a program. I mean, anyone gets better. Like your mobility will get better if you train it.
1: For sure. And like you will, and you can do it anywhere. But I think the hardest part for me to explain to people is that you do not get in extreme ranges by training at mobility at a low intent if that makes sense right like oh yeah you still have to train really intensely and push your end ranges so much to get into extreme positions right just like if you're gonna squat 600 pounds you don't fall into a 600 pound squat by training you know really consistently for a couple sets a week throughout a course it's like you're gonna push it at some point and i think that's like the hardest thing to tell people is like if i gave you an extreme amount of like squatting work versus saying you have to push these end ranges of mobility. You think this is so much less of an impact on like your overall like training economy because it's just mobility. But yeah. there's so many implications that go along with opening up new ranges, especially if you are throwing, running, swinging, whatever. It's like people just aren't, aren't looking at it through a lens of like, why am I creating these adaptations what do I really need? And, you know, I kind of wanted to post on this and I'm glad we kind of brought it up. When people talk about becoming a better rotator, are you trying to increase the capacity from a joint function level, a muscle action, tissue health to be able to complete a task better? Or are you just trying to complete a task better? Right? Like complete a you, task better. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like, what are you yeah. really trying to do? say like, I'm going to rotate better. It's like, what does that mean from a lens of like you just seeing a hundred people saying rotate to rotate rotation is king, whatever. It's like, sure, man, I love the underlying thing that you're talking about, but like you have to decide, are you trying to improve joint function, muscle action, tissue, health, tissue quality, whatever, or are you trying to complete a task better? I am the tightest yeah. mover. Damn near that. I know I'll go. Nope, ahead, golf
0: Liam or Liam. Yeah. Yeah, Liam, I I already know it's Liam. I already
1: know. Dude, like, I'll go hit a golf ball over 200 miles an hour. Yeah. But like, once again, it's like, I don't have a capacity that people would say lends to being able to rotate better, but I can complete a task like that. So it's like, we have to determine what we really want out of our training.
0: Yeah, and I think that that kind of goes right hand in hand with pitching mechanics. And it's like, am I going to move better or am I going to train the ability to throw harder? I guess like the perception of moving better and increasing joint health, like that isn't always good for performance. Just a loop back. Like it's like, guys that throw harder generally are less efficient. Like look at any of Kyle Wasserberger's stuff on Twitter. Like it's pretty apparent that that's not like you turning your pelvis, like getting more hip shoulder, like might be, like, yes, it's good to increase obvious mechanic, like, any obvious mechanical flaws, like, not blocking, like, hitting a block, like, is bad. But generally, like, moving better isn't what's going to be the unlock to get you there.
1: Yeah, and I think that's what I have trouble getting across is, why does being a better mover allude to better task completion? If they're not, uh, like, I'm not saying that it may not help, right, but everyone taking it as an absolute Yes. right like those insane. say like may it, w- could it possibly help sure is it guaranteed to help no but i think too yes. many people think it as like a move better complete the task easier it's like not necessarily right not saying yeah. it may but i can for sure say i cannot guarantee that you opening up new ranges jumping higher x y and z is going to elicit better outcomes in a specific task like i cannot guarantee that
0: yeah i mean so the only thing that I know that increases ball velocity is increased force in the vector of the, in the same vector you're trying to produce velocity. In. That is the only thing that increases ball below, like jumping higher, like gives you the capacity to potentially transfer more force into that ball. Like improving, improving mechanics, potential for energy transfer, to go into the ball like the the farther and farther down the mechanics rabbit hole you go like it's like how much is this going to benefit me putting energy into the ball and like with your pelvis like it might not be that much like as like i hate to say it but like unless it's like a big issue like it might not be limiting you that much but things like like the reason why i think the feet are so important is because they're directly interacting with the ground. And ground reaction force is like the main way that energy is transferred. Like any of the energy flow cal- calculations that are done, like all start with ground reaction force data.
1: Yeah. And I think that's, I don't know if you've seen my post where it's like, everyone talks about proximal and distal referring to mid and yes. out. But yeah, it's yeah. like, everyone forgets the global reference point of like, where where are we connected to reactions in terms like reaction force it's like the foot is literally the most proximal to force right to like a ground reaction force that our body is like so like looking at it through that lens like you said is like being able to have a more global view on what we're trying to accomplish yeah probably better like i think the word potential is the best way to put it i've i've mentioned a few times like the hardest part about Being a coach in terms of like developing any sort of weight room capacity, physical capacity, we'll just say physical capacity or inherent like mechanical improvements. All you can really control is potential. You can't really control like result. I think that's the hardest part.
0: So going back to your proximal post, because I thought that that was an interesting idea and I'm not going to pretend like I got everything that you were trying to say in that video. The way I understand it is the feet, like anything to do with the ground is the proximal section. So like when, during leg lift, like the foot, the back foot is proximal during foot plant. The front foot is proximal and the ball is always distal. And so anything that is happening distal is just a reflection of what's going on in the ground. That's like the three sentences that I get.
1: Yeah. And it's more the, I guess not necessarily that it's only a result of what happens on the ground, but it's the idea of everyone talks about like spinal engine theory. And I'm, I don't really want to get into it. Right. But like when we, when the words proximal and distal are used it is always referring to midline out. Yes. But they're only look at looking at it from a local reference point of like the body and that's it. Right. But like you're standing. So it's like, You are from a ground reaction force, right? You, The most proximal point to that reaction force is your foot landing or, you know, on leg lift as you're moving down the mountain, whatever, right? So it's like now have to find a way to deliver energy proximally to distally, which would be foot and ball, or back foot to front foot while being in a position to set up rotation as you're going to deliver the throw.
0: and. I'm with you because I'm, I'm so with you on, on this because the spine, like the spine doesn't drive the throw because that's just not how energy flow happens. Like that's like, there is, there is an amount of, of energy that is generating the spine. Like I will not take that back. Like it is important. Like the spine does a lot of stuff. It transfers energy from the lower body to the upper body. None of that would be possible without the spine. You're never gonna like. You should side bend. You should do a whole bunch of stuff to make sure that that happens. But the way that energy is transferred is it start like starts at the ground, ground reaction force, and it's transferred up through each joint. Like that is how it happens, and that's how all the calculations work. And that is the number one correlate 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 with ball velocity that exists is energy flow into the elbow into the forearm at ball release, which if you're not dumb, you understand that there's also energy flowing from the forearm into the ball simultaneously. Yeah. And so it's pretty obvious that that's our most important calculation. And the the trunk, like, doesn't really generate energy too much during that.
1: Yeah, and I think that's like the hard part for me is claiming it the driver, right? Is it important? Yeah, a thousand percent, yeah. But like, yes. it's, more, it's more of the medium of transfer that I view it as than like a driver of something, if that makes sense, like.
0: Yeah, I, like, I also view it as like, like it's triplanar. I think that that transfer is triplanar. It's not just, you know, transverse. It's not sagittal, it's not frontal. All three things are happening at once. And if you don't train the spine for that three-dimensional transfer, you're never going to get there. And that's why, you know, side bending is so popular right now is because people forgot about the frontal plane. And they always do. You should definitely be training pitchers to change directions and move in the frontal plane way more than we do. But that's neither here nor there. I'm just saying that that's like kind of the the epitome of this argument. And it's like, it's happening everywhere. And that's why the spinal engine is important. But to call up the driver, like that, like my, my, that dude has no legs. That's why he's walking like that. Like if he had legs, like normal gait doesn't look like that.
1: That's that's like, that was my argument. Is like just because you can complete a task, just just like I can complete a task with very limited range of what people would deem what they want to see to be able to rotate efficiently. That that is a compensation that he is making to learn how to deliver himself in a forward projection. Sure, that's yes. fucking. I won't look like that when I walk. So yeah. it's it's once again, is there validity in a lot of the stuff behind it? probably like i don't yes I don't, it's like yeah
0: the book's but, trash you only read the book
1: but i also believe that like people stray far away from like you said energy flow and like what it means to develop physical capacity that allows an increased potential for that
0: yeah i mean if you if you care about energy flow which you should you care about the ground and then you care about how much force you put into the ground uh, because, you know, equal opposite reactions. To create ground reaction force, you have to push into the ground, so it pushes back. So, people kind of forget about Newtonian physics a little bit. Oh, yeah. And that's and that's I, a little sad.
1: That's where I started getting more into, I don't want to say archetyping guys of, like, propulsive dominant yielding dominance. Like, yeah, those are, like, great terms and the easiest way I could probably get it across on social media, but it's like, I think strategy on how you get into the ground and the timing of things matters a lot that people don't necessarily look at. Like from like a, from, for example, like I take a lot of like the open biomech data and try to do my own stuff with it. It's like, I can recreate some of those like graphs with event-based markers and things like that. I'm looking at change in strategy versus any sort of like objective output if that makes sense like yeah peaks peaks you know what sort of like frequency some of these things are happening at if there's any change in literally any shape of any of those signals it's like to me i'm looking more from a subjective viewpoint of strategy than any sort of output based thing right now